For when I tried to keep the law, it condemned me. So I died to the law. I stopped trying to meet all its requirements so that I might live for God. My old self has been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. So I live in this earthly body by trusting in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not treat the grace of God as meaningless. For if keeping the law could make us right with God, then there was no need for Christ to die. O foolish Galatians, who has cast an evil spell on you? For the meaning of Jesus Christ's death was made as clear to you as if you had seen a picture of his death on the cross. Let me ask you this one question. Did you receive the Holy Spirit by obeying the law of Moses? Of course not. You received the Spirit because you believed the message you heard about Christ. How foolish can you be? After starting your new lives in the Spirit, why are you now trying to become perfect by your own human effort? Have you experienced so much for nothing? Surely it was not in vain, was it? I ask you again, does God give you the Holy Spirit and work miracles among you because you obey the law? Of course not because you believe the message you heard about Christ. In the same way, Abraham believed God, and God counted him as righteous because of his faith. The real children of Abraham, then, are those who put their faith in God. What's more, the scriptures looked forward to this time, when God would make the Gentiles right in his sight because of their faith. God promised this good news to Abraham long ago when he said, All nations will be blessed through you. So all who put their faith in Christ share the same blessing Abraham received because of his faith. But those who depend on the law to make them right with God are under his curse. For the scriptures say, Cursed is everyone who does not obey and observe the commands that were written in God's book of the law. So it is clear that no one can be made right with God by trying to keep the law. For the scripture says it is through faith that a righteous person has life. This way of faith is very different from the way of law, which says it is through obeying the law that a person has life. But Christ has rescued us from the curse pronounced by the law. When he was hung on the cross, he took upon himself the curse for our wrongdoing. For it is written in the scriptures, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. Through Christ Jesus, God has blessed the Gentiles with the same blessing he promised to Abraham so that we who are believers might receive the promised Holy Spirit through faith. Galatians chapter 2, 19 through chapter 3, 14. Would you stand with me this morning? We are in week five of our series on Galatians, this incredibly important letter that the Apostle Paul writes where he is defending the gospel. The Apostle Paul, he's went around, he's started many churches, he's went on missionary journeys, he's preached the gospel, he has set up pastors, he has planted churches, and then he's moved on and he goes back and he writes letters to them. The book of Galatians is written to churches in a region, not a city, but in a region of Asia Minor called Galatia. And he's writing to them because what has happened is false teachers have crept in behind him. And they have started to do a couple of things. They have said, number one, the Apostle Paul isn't really an apostle and you don't need to listen to him. And secondly, they're saying that the gospel that he's preaching isn't actually true. But that to have 
salvation. You must not just believe in what Jesus did for you. You must also become a Jew and come underneath the full Mosaic law. And so this letter, which was uh, honestly the hottest letter that he writes out of the entire New Testament, he's writing and he's correcting this issue. And he's challenging them saying there is no way you can be saved through the law. The law. You can only be saved through Jesus Christ. And so as we dive more into this today, we're going to look at the, the point of where he, he's challenging, which are you going to rely on, faith in Jesus or faith in the law? And so we're going to tackle that today. But let's go to the Father one final time in prayer, asking him to speak to us through his word this morning. God, we come before you. Jesus, we are so thankful for all that you've done and the many ways that you've loved us. God, we're thankful that we are saved by grace through faith. Lord, nothing that we could ever do or earn could deserve or earn your love, but God, it is freely given to us in Jesus. Lord, I pray that every heart this morning would have a hunger and desire to know you, that every heart this morning would say, God, would you reveal yourself through your word? In your precious and most holy name we pray. Amen. Amen. Before you grab a seat, if you would turn to the person next to you, and I want you to do, tell them, the silliest thing you've ever gotten into an argument for. <laughs> the silliest or dumbest thing you've ever gotten in an argument with. Three, two. So, me and my brother-in-law got into an argument that almost came to blows <laughs> over who is the greatest quarterback of all time, Tom Brady or Peyton Manning. And of course the answer is Peyton Manning. Um, Let's just get that out from, from, from the outset, but it, uh, <laughs> it is. Brady might have more Super Bowl rings, but he's a cheater, asterisk. That's all I'm saying. It's on there. It's on there. <laughs> Sorry. If you're a Patriots fan, it's okay. We have an altar later. We can pray for you. Um, we do believe in repentance in this church. There is. <laughs> we do make that available. Um, I'm joking, I'm joking. Um, I, I wanted you to th think about this with me because whenever we get into an argument, we prepare evidence. We're great at it, aren't we? You start getting a little bit hot or heated and suddenly like your brain immediately turns into lawyer mode. It's like, let's get the file folder. <laughs> I'm gonna jam every single piece of evidence as possible into this argument. And we're just like, we're just stacking them up. And then not only are we stacking them up, we're not just collecting evidence. In our mind at the same time that we're getting frustrated with this person, we are assorting it in our mind. Which would be the best piece and when to bring it out, right? Like I've noticed this, I, like I said, I did youth ministry for 14 years. Teenagers are phenomenal lawyers. <laughs> They're great at like just building evidence and getting it ready to go. Some of you are like thinking back to your teenage years, arguments with your parents, and you're like, oh man, he's calling me out. I've noticed this even like with my own, my own kids. Um, with my daughter, Ruby, um, it's not just argument. It's whenever she wants something, um, I feel like in our house it turns into Shark Tank. <laughs> Have you ever seen the TV show Shark Tank? <clears throat> It's a, group, it's a group of investors that are sitting there, and then out of nowhere, someone comes with a very carefully ready presentation for why that, like, I feel like my daughter comes forward, and she's like, Father, I'm coming before you today with an offer, <laughs> right? Like, th this is why I need the pony, <laughs> right? This is the joy that the pony will give me. <laughs> this is how much the pony costs. I am looking for a 
X dollar steak from you, right? It's like she, she has this whole argument prepped and ready to go. She is preparing evidence for me, right? And, and we do this ourselves. When we're getting in an argument with someone, we prepare evidence. And what I want you to notice from the book of Galatians is that the Apostle Paul, all the way through this, and even now to today, he's preparing evidence. He is um, I want you to think of it like even like in a courtroom. Um, there, the importance of evidence in a courtroom is vital to a case. Your success depends on how good your lawyer is at finding and displaying at the right time the correct evidence to convince the judge, to convince the jury that either you are innocent or that you're guilty. And the Apostle Paul, he's sitting here and he's writing to the Galatian church and he's realized that these people that he knows and love, that they've been presented some evidence by these false teachers that's absolutely not true. And so he has been, throughout the whole course of this book, he's been preparing piece by piece and he's been presenting it to them to prove to them the truth of the gospel. And we've seen that all the weeks leading up to this. And so I want you to think about this with me. Paul is seasoned at this. He learned it under his time at, as, with Gamaliel. He, we've seen it in his letters, especially in the book of Romans. The book of Romans, he's going to present even a question that he's expecting his opponents to ask, and then he's going to answer it. He's going to go to every single one of their points and go, let me show you what the truth really is. And the evidence so far that we've seen to this point is this. Number one, he starts at the source. He says, my message does not come from the apostle Paul. In chapter 1, he writes to them, and he says, I want you to know that the location of this gospel message that I preached to you, that you believed, that you were saved by, it didn't come from Paul, it came from Jesus. This came from the mouth of Jesus himself. Secondly, second piece, he provides us his own changed life. Paul is saying, I want to show you the proof of the power of this message. I was Christianity's number one attacker. You all were terrified of me. I was there for the murder of Stephen. I would go from town to town. I would drag people out of their homes and throw them into jail. My goal was to decimate Christianity. In fact, the word that's used there that Paul uses to describe his animosity towards the church is like whenever a military would come into a city and destroy it and burn it to the ground. He says, that was my goal for Christianity. But look how I am now. I'm its chief missionary. My whole life has been completely changed by this message. Number three, he shows them my message was approved by the apostles. That I went back to them with this message that I had been preaching for many, many years. And I conferred with them to say, is this the same thing that you're saying? And they agreed with me. Then he uses the example of Titus. He had traveled with, with Titus to Jerusalem whenever Paul, uh, Paul was there and Titus was a Gentile. And what's happening at the Galatians specifically is that these false believers that have come in, they've told the Galatians, you're not saved unless you get circumcised. And what they meant by that is you're not saved unless you physically become a Jew and place yourself under the full Mosaic law and then have faith in Jesus, then you can be saved. It's based on what you believe, but it's also based on what you do. And Paul is adamantly saying that that is not the case. So he uses Titus as an example. He says, I traveled with Titus Jerusalem, and they didn't even make him get circumcised. Proof my message is true. Last week, we talked about a fun one. Paul confronts the apostle Peter. 
because Peter was in the wrong. And we talked about the importance of the gospel longs to bring people to the table rather than to keep them from it. And then today, we're going to look in over the next couple weeks, he's going to bring to the table probably the biggest piece of evidence he can. He's going to go all the way back to the Old Testament, and he's going to talk about Abraham. Chapters 3 and 4, he's looking at Abraham, and we're going to be looking backward at Abraham to prove this point. So the question becomes, why does he bring Abraham into this? Why Abraham? And the answer is that Abraham, we find him in his story all the way back in the very first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis. God makes a covenant with Abraham. Abraham was a man who was incredibly old. He had no children, and neither him or his wife were able to have any. Um, they had tried for many, 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 many years, were unable to conceive, unable to have any children at all. And God speaks to Abraham, and he says, Abraham, I am going to make you into a great nation, that your descendants will outnumber the sand and the stars. In fact, even there's this cool point. Um, if you like campfires at all, one of my favorite things about camping is like going out and like just sitting there and looking up at the sky and seeing like all of those stars. God does that with Abraham. He pulls him out of his tent. And he says, I want you to come here. I want you to not just hear my promise. I want you to see it. And he brings him out there and he says, all right, Abraham, look up at the sky. I want you to count the stars. And Abraham looks up there and he's kind of like, oh God, I really don't think I can. There's a lot of them. And God's like, that's cool. I'll wait. <laughs> he says, no, I want you to literally try to count them. And, and, and Abraham's sitting here and he goes, your descendants will be even more than that. Imagine you're close to 100 years old and you have no kids. That's a promise that's pretty hard to believe. God, you're going to make that my descendants when I have none right now. It's a moment of faith. It's a moment of who are you going to trust God's ability or your present circumstance? What God has said or what you feel? What God can do or what you can do? Because Abraham's going, God, I got a lot of evidence. I can't do this. I've been trying. I've been trying. I've been trying. Impossible. Unable to happen. Been doing, trying for many years to have a kid. God, I can't. It's not happening. God's like, I promised you, you will. And not only that, that from that descendant, your descendants will outnumber the stars. Abraham later, much when he gets older, he, he ends up having Isaac. Isaac has Jacob. Jacob has many different sons, and, and they, those sons end up becoming the 12 tribes of Israel, which all Israelites would trace their lineage from one of those tribes, okay? Now, the reason that Paul is bringing up Abraham is because the Jews of their day, how would they would describe themselves is they would say, we are sons of Abraham. Kind of weird. <laughs> They'd be like saying, I'm a son of George Washington. <laughs> You're like, I don't think so. <laughs> that was quite a bit ago. What they're saying is that we are descendants of the promise to Abraham because of our family lineage to him. Abraham was their patriarch, and doing so, as, them, as they would call themselves sons of Abraham, they weren't just saying that they are Abraham's children. They are saying that we are heirs of the promise and the covenant that was given to him. They saw themselves as being made right with God because they were Abraham's children through their family line and through their observance to the law and specifically through circumcision. So the false teachers that have crept in, 
they've been using Abraham a lot. They're saying that Moses and the law came from him, that circumcision came from him, that therefore if you want to be saved, if you want to also be sons of Abraham, you have to be circumcised. You have to physically become a Jew, and then after you're a Jew, then you can be saved. And so they're telling this to all the Galatian churches, and they're like, hey, you have to do this. And Paul's saying to them, if you get circumcised, Christ is worthless to you. Because what you're saying is, I can somehow earn my salvation. And he's saying, this is impossible. The 12 tribes came through Abraham. Jesus is the promised one that comes through that line. And so what these false teachers are saying is that to fully accept Jesus, you must first become a Jew, come underneath the Mosaic law, come underneath circumcision. So then the question we have is this. This is what Paul is, is wrestling with the Galatians, and he's going to challenge them with, and he's going to take them all the way back to the Old Testament. So who are the children of Abraham? Who are they really? Are they children of law, or are they children of faith? That's a question that he's going to pose here, and Paul asks them, okay, so how was Abraham declared righteous? What made Abraham righteous? What made Abraham right with God? Was it that he came underneath the law, he was a Jew, that he was circumcised, that he did all these things that these people are telling you you have to do to become saved? Was that Abraham, is that how God declared him righteous or was it something else? And Paul's gonna go, it can't be any of those things. And he's gonna present to them a case and show them how, we're gonna look at this case in depth over the next few weeks. But first one I want you to notice is it can't be because Abraham was a Jew. Because there were no Jews. The word Jew didn't even come into play until far along the line after Abraham. So there's no chance it could be because of that. It can't be because that term doesn't even come into play till later in history. It can't be because Abraham followed the law. It'll be hundreds of years before Moses is given the law by God that will be given to the Jewish nation. So it can't be because he came underneath that. And then lastly, it can't be because he was circumcised. Because God declared him righteous before Abraham was ever circumcised. The case that Paul is making is all these people that are telling you these things, the truth is, is that Abraham was declared righteous, made right before God, brought into a relationship with him before any of those things came into play. Therefore, to be made right with God, it has to be outside of that. Paul quotes from Genesis here. Let's look at this from verse 5. He says, I ask you again, does God give you the Holy Spirit and work miracles among you because you obey the law? Of course not. It's because you believe the message you heard about Christ. In the same way, and he's quoting this from Genesis, Abraham believed God and God counted him righteous because of his faith. The real children of Abraham, then, are those who put their faith in God. See, Abraham, he's the patriarch for the children of faith. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. How can you say you are sons because you're Jews? Paul's asking. Abraham wasn't a Jew. Are you saying you're sons of Abraham because of circumcision? Abraham received the promise 
was declared righteous before he was ever circumcised. Is it because of any of that? No. What he's even saying is, that I want you to know this, and he's going to talk about this later. He's going to say, in the new covenant, we also have circumcision, but circumcision of the heart. And just like with Abraham, it came after he was declared righteous. The same is true for us. After we come to God in faith, the Holy Spirit steps in and starts to do what? He starts changing us. He starts giving us new motives and new desires, and he changes us from the inside out. But the, the process does not look like this in the kingdom. Hey, you need Jesus? Here's what you need to do. Go do this list of 10 things. Work real, real hard. Clean yourself up. Get right with God. Then come to church. And then after all that and your life's back together, then God will save you. No, 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 no. The reality is, is that we come to God broken desperately in need of a savior and the holy spirit infills us rescues us saves us when we least deserved it and then he changes everything about us that's the gospel message it comes salvation comes through faith in jesus alone now you might be thinking is it just paul that's saying this what about jesus Let's take a look at this from John chapter 8. This is Jesus speaking. He's talking to a group of Pharisees, and he says, I realize that you are descendants of Abraham, and yet some of you are trying to kill me because there's no room in your hearts for my message. I'm telling you what I saw when I was with my father. Catch this. He says, but you are following the advice of your father. And they respond, our father is Abraham, they declared. No, Jesus replied, for if you were really the children of Abraham, you would follow his example. Instead, you are trying to kill me because I told you the truth, which I heard from God. Abraham never did such a thing. No, you're imitating your real father. They replied, we aren't illegitimate children. God himself is our true father. And Jesus told them, if God were your father, you would love me. But because I've come to you from God, I'm not here on my own, but he sent me. Why can't you understand what I'm saying? It's because you can't even hear me. Listen to this next line. For you are the children of your father, the devil, and you love to do the evil things he does. He looks at these people who think that they are descendants of Abraham because of circumcision, because of the Mosaic law, because of all these works that they keep trying to do. And Jesus looks at them and goes, you are not descendants of Abraham. Your true father is the devil. He said, true descendants of Abraham, they would look to me and rejoice. See, true children of Abraham are those who come to God through faith in his son, Jesus. So the question then becomes, how did life change happen? This is what Paul asks. Did you receive the Holy Spirit by obeying the law of Moses? Of course not. He says, you received the Spirit because you believed the message that you heard about Christ. How foolish can you be? Some translators, like there's commentators, that this, these, when he was writing this, like there's a point where he says, oh foolish Galatians, the actual commentator says it should better be translated, stupid Galatians. <laughs> He's saying, I can't believe you're believing this message. I can't believe you're trusting in this. He's saying, after you started your new life in the spirit, are you now going to try to become perfect through your own effort? How does that work for you? See, without a question, is it coming through law or faith? Do you get saved by the law or do you get saved by faith? Did you happen 
to just put yourself together, get everything right, and then come to God? Or did it happen when you came to God and you trusted that he could do this very thing that you couldn't do? I don't know about you. Maybe you're different than me, but when I came to Christ through salvation, I came at a point where I knew I had no hope. That's the whole point of the law. We've talked about this for many weeks. The law is like a cancer scan. It can scan and it will tell you where you're broken, where you're hurting. It'll show you where there's disease that can kill you. And it points it out, but the scan has no ability to rescue you or save you. You could go underneath that PET scan 10 million times, have it scan you, scan you, scan you, scan you, scan you. And every single time it scans you, you're not going to get any better. The law has no ability to rescue you or save you, but there is one who does, and his name is Jesus. And the truth is, is that what the law does is it looks at you and it goes, Josh Johnson, you are broken, you are hurting, you are in need of a Savior. Turn to him. And what Paul's been showing the Galatian churches is if you think that the law can save you, it's like you at sea drowning and someone throws you a cinder block and it's like, hey, here's a life preserver. (laughs) Hang on tightly. (laughs) You do that, you're going to sink. Instead, no, the gospel is the life preserver. It's Jesus. It's the message of God. See, the question becomes is this, is what do we fully rely on? What do we trust on? That's what faith really is. Let, Let me paint it a different way for you. This could get dicey. Oh boy. All right. So I have faith in this chair. I hope so. Right? When you came in this morning and you walked in and you decided to sit down in this chair, you had faith. Maybe you didn't even realize you did. You had faith that would support your weight. You're like, I'm just going to come in. I'm going to plop in. So when we go in and we stand on it, I'm having faith. Woo, it's a little. I'm having faith. This chair will support my weight. I'm having faith that it will hold true and keep me upright, that I'm not going to fall. Some of you are like, I don't know about this. (laughs) If he falls, who finishes the sermon? (laughs) But here's the thing. I'm placing my full trust, I'm placing my weight, I'm standing on it. If you place your faith and your trust on the law, you're hopeless. It would be like me bringing Calvin in here, my three-year-old, and going, I think he can hold daddy's weight. I'm going to stand on him. (laughs) It would crush him and it would injure me because it doesn't have the ability to hold the weight of your life. But Jesus does. When we stand on the gospel, I am standing not on my works, not on my goodness, not on anything I could ever do to earn the love of God, not on anything I've ever done or ever will do to earn the love of God. I'm standing fully upon the finished work of what Jesus accomplished on Calvary. I'm saying that he took my sin, my place, my punishment upon himself, and in return, I receive from him what he fully deserved. He was perfect, he was innocent, he was righteous. And as I stand in Christ, I stand in his perfection. 
And when Jesus looks at me, he doesn't see Josh Johnson. He sees Jesus Christ. And he declares me righteous, not because of what I've done, but because of who Christ is. See, that's the gospel. That's what faith is. And so what Paul's asking is, he's going, okay, did you receive salvation? Did you receive the Holy Spirit? When God worked miracles among you, was it because you had your act together? <laughs> he's like, I know you, and you didn't. You know, we've all got that friend, right? The friend we're not really supposed to be around because they like... <laughs> We end up doing really stupid things. I had that friend in high school. Um, I was usually pretty tame, but he'd be the one that, like, we'd be on a bridge, and he'd get that, like, look in his eye, and he's like, let's jump off, <laughs> right? <laughs> right? No, the, the truth of the matter is the fact that Jesus has came. He has rescued us. How did your life change? How did it happen? Did it become because of what you accomplished or what you did, or did it become because of what Christ did in you? And Paul's looking at the Galatians, and he's saying, God saved you. He rescued you. He filled you with his Holy Spirit. He worked miracles in your midst. And guess what? None of you, none of you deserved his love, earned his love, or could have received it. It was given to you freely because of grace through your faith. So the question we have to ask, though, what if Paul's wrong? Is there any way possible we could be made right with God through the law? Can it possibly happen by the law? Paul answers this. Galatians 3, 10 and 11. For those who depend on the law to make them right with God, they are under his curse. For the scriptures say, Cursed is everyone who does not observe and obey all the commands that are written in God's book of the law. So it is clear that no one can be made right with God by trying to keep the law. For the scripture said it is through faith that a righteous person has life. Paul says, you want to try to use the law as the basis of your salvation? You will be cursed. Think of it this way. Um, verse 10, he says, all who rely on the works of the law are underneath a curse. If you literally do not do everything that's under the law. If you stumble at just one point, the law holds you guilty as breaking everything. Think of it this way. Devin, you're going to be a judge, okay? <laughs> no, like, like a judge in a courtroom. And I murdered someone. I just took a really bad one. I was off the top of my head. I don't know why I thought of murder, but... <laughs> We just went there. Maybe I've got animosity built up there that I don't know about. We'll, we'll talk about that later. All right. So anyways, I've murdered someone that come before you, and I, and I come before the judge, and I look at you, and I'm like, Devin, here's the thing. I need you to hear me. I'm a pretty good person, like really good. I help old ladies across the street every week, like every single week. There's this old lady that I, I, I walk her hand and toe. I even sing to her as we go across. You are my sunshine, right? It's like, it's like that moment, right? Like, th this is a great thing. Like, now, I I've never jaywalked. Every single time it's like the day to take the trash out, I take it perfectly to the curb. I, if there's any that's in my yard, I pick it up and any of my neighbors. Um, I mow my yard and my neighbor's yard. Like, I, I, I clean up the city streets. There's like the adopt the highway. I've got one with just my name. It's adopt the highway, Josh Johnson, <laughs> right? So, so here's the thing. I, I need you to understand. I'm a really, really good person. So, like, um, this murder thing, it's not that big of a deal because of all that other stuff, right? Yeah. 
the judge says, mm, no. He'd be an unjust judge if he went and said, you're free. Right? What if it was your brother or your sister I murdered? What would your perspective of the judge be in that moment? You would scream out and cry, how dare you? That's unjust. You can't do that. He's guilty under the law. And I go, oh, but what? I'm just guilty at one point. Just one. Every other law that's on the books, I'm perfectly good. But I, just this little one. <laughs> Not really little, but I mean, it's just this one, right? See, that, that's what Paul's saying here. He's saying, if you want to try to use the law as the basis of your salvation, the second you break even the smallest of commands, the whole law comes down upon you. See, and God's a just judge. He cannot let a single sin ever go unpunished. Because in the same way, we would look at him and go, how dare you? How dare you? So the question then becomes, who does the punishment fall upon? You or Christ? You see, for all who come to faith in Jesus, I'm not just placing my faith in what he's given me, I'm also placing my faith in what he's done for me. Upon that tree, Jesus took every single sin I have ever committed and he placed it upon himself. The one who is perfectly guilty under the law can only be made perfectly innocent if the one who is perfectly innocent was made perfectly guilty. The Bible says, he who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of Christ. That's the gospel. Paul is saying this and he's saying to you, listen, there's no possible way that you can do this through the law. Habakkuk 2.4 says that the righteous one will live by faith. We live by, we live from, we live out of faith. This life that pleases God is one that is soaked in him. The law is not based on faith. The law is used to judge. Now the law is good and it's perfect because it shows the righteousness and goodness of God. But we can't live trying to accomplish it for our salvation. After salvation, we live and we're only able to accomplish the law as grace takes over our life and we live it out. And Paul's going to talk about that. He's going to talk about that there's a difference between salvation and sanctification. Sanctification is where the Holy Spirit comes after salvation, cleans us up, and makes us daily more like Jesus. But if you think there's anything that you can do to earn your salvation, Paul is saying you are standing on the law as it being able to hold the weight of your salvation, but it's, it's Calvin. You're standing on a three-year-old, and it ain't going to hold you. See, the truth is that God works in us by faith. I've got one of these little, like, sponge Brillo pad things here. It's that season, right? It's the car wash season. Summer has hit. It's a gorgeous day outside. You want to get outside and clean your car. You know, one of the things that I hate more than almost anything in the world is the feeling of a sponge that has not been soaked in water. It's got that, like, it gives me the heebie-jeebies. I get, like, goosebumps. It's like you touch it and you're like, ugh. <laughs> I don't know why. Maybe I'm just weird like that. But a sponge, like, if I just walked out to my car right now, I'm like, ah, I'm just going to, I'm going to wash it out right now with no water, no soap, no nothing. I take the sponge and I just start rubbing on my car. That's not going to be a good thing. 
you need something. You need the soap. You need the water. The sponge needs to be completely soaked in it. This is how faith works. This is our life. And as we soak in the gospel, it does a couple really important things. It gives us power to clean ourselves up because it's Christ doing it in us. It gives us the power to start making changes in our life because it has come from faith in what he's done, not faith in what I can do. There's a huge difference between the two. See, a sponge that's full of water is useful to clean and it can do its job. It needs continual filling though. You gotta rinse that out and then soak it back in. We need to be people of faith who are fully soaked in the gospel. Those who have swam in the depths of God's love because then we have something to offer to the world. The sponge is useless without the sudsy water. We're useless without soaking ourselves in the love of God. And the greater we hold and we believe in the gospel, the more it will not just change our lives, it'll change those around us. The truth is, as we have encountered, believed, and entrusted in Jesus, it makes us come alive. And the greater we hold and we believe in the gospel, the more we're going to see lives changed in this church, in this city, in this county. If you and I go into the world with a gospel that's based on my efforts, my abilities, my whatever, it's like walking up to someone and going, let me clean your red. No water. Like, that's going to be uncomfortable. <laughs> Especially if it's the Brillo pad side. <laughs> Who wants to see me do it? I'm joking. <laughs> But if we're soaked in the gospel, if we're speaking the truth in love, we walk with a message that the world around us is desperate for. Can I tell you, the people that you're working in your family, they know they're hurting, they know they're broken. They're not shocked by that. But what do we have to offer? If my answer to their brokenness is, come look how good I am, I'm going to fail you every day of the week and twice on Sunday. But if my message to the broken world is, come look at my Savior. Come look at my Jesus. Come look at the one who loved me at my worst and declared over me my best. I want you to come and see the one who painted sunsets who knows every hair on your body who loves you recklessly that's something quite different because here's the truth faith pleases God without faith it is impossible to please God but it also shows us that our pleasure needs to be in him Anybody here recently been to a museum at all? No one, wow. You guys need to get out. <laughs> when you go to a museum or any one of those places, um, one of my favorite places to go in the entire world is Washington, D.C. I love the monuments. I love the museums. I love going to different places. They always offer you a tour guide, right? And most of us, we've had probably a mixture of the two. You've had the good tour guide and the bad tour guide. 
The bad tour guide sounds something like this. Thank you for coming today. It is an honor to have you today at the National Holocaust Museum. Will you now please come and follow me, right? There's that guy, and you're like, this is going to be the worst two hours of my life, <laughs> right? You leave the place having had an interest in the subject to now hating the subject, <laughs> right? You leave the place as like, there was a spark there. I kind of wanted to know more. I was somewhat interested. And when you, like, like, the entire time you're there, like, you're thinking, where's the nearest exit? I've never pulled a fire alarm before, but today might be the day, right? You're thinking of any possible way that you can get out of the building when you have that kind of tour guide. But then there's the other tour guide, right? There's the second tour guide, which is passionate about the subject. Like, I, I remember I was at the Smithsonian, and we got one of those tour guides, and we went into where the Hope Diamond was. And I'm sitting here, and he's, like, looking around, and he's doing this thing. I'm, like, trying to figure out what he's doing. And he's, like, come here, kid, come here. And I'm, like, okay, cool. <laughs> right? I come over, and he's, like, let me tell you some cool stuff about this Hope Diamond. He starts talking to me about the case. You know that the case of the Hope Diamond, like, the case that holds it is over $1.5 million. That it's pressure sensitive, so if someone were to try to steal it, the actual case ends up dropping 10 floors, and it takes 12 grown men by hand to pull it out of it so that there's no way it could possibly be broken through. The glass is bulletproof. He's like, you could take a high-powered rifle and fire it at that glass. He goes, and nothing's coming through. And he's sitting here, he's telling me, and the entire time I'm sitting here, and I'm looking at this diamond, and I'm listening to him, and the whole time I'm thinking as a little kid, I just want to touch the case and see if it falls. Right? <laughs> I'm like, I want to give it a good shake and see if it goes. So, so, you know, I'm sitting here, and I'm like super excited. But as I walked out of there that day, like, I could have cared less about the Hope Diamond going in. Walking out. I wanted to know everything there was to know about the Hope Diamond. That's the difference between law and grace. Law is the tour guide that feels like I have to be here. I'm punching in the clock. This is what I'm supposed to be doing. I have it written down as a script. I can sit here and tell you, come follow Jesus. He will make your life better. <laughs> God loves you. <laughs> right? But there's the second tour guide. Mm. I pray this is us. I always want to be the second guide. I want to be keenly so aware of what he's rescued me from. I talked about this on Mother's Day. I'm going to bring it up again. Um, one of the things that I've always valued about my mom, anytime she starts to pray, she starts crying. So just don't be freaked out. If she ever prays for you, she's going to cry. I'm just letting you know. It's one of the most beautiful things that I love about her because the presence of Jesus is so vital to her. Being near him, being in his presence is something that she so treasures. She knows Jesus. She doesn't just know about him. She knows Jesus. I remember doing my grandpa's funeral. One of the things I went up there and I talked about, or I spoke at part of it, and I, I talked about Paul's letter to Timothy, and he says, I know in him whom I believe. I didn't know about, I know him. You see, the, the second tour guide is grace. 
It's faith that says God met me at my absolute worst and declared over me my best. When I felt like the greatest failure ever, Jesus said, son, come home. When I could give you every reason why I did not deserve his love, why I did not deserve to be loved, why I could not ever earn his love, he goes, I know you can't. How do we miss that in the story of the prodigal son? The son's out in the fields. He's with pigs. He's surrounded by urine and feces, and he's contemplating eating the slop that the pigs are eating. And it comes to his mind, and he remembers how great his dad treated servants. And he said, you know what? I'm going to come to my senses. If I can just go home, my dad would treat me even, he'd treat me a little bit better than the servants, would he? If I, if I could just go home, I'd say, Dad, look, I know how much I've wronged you. I know how broken I am. I've literally, the last few years, done everything I could that was the opposite of your law. Will you just take me home as a slave? And he starts his journey. He's ragged clothes are torn he he reeks and he stinks and his dad sees him and comes running he throws his arms around him and the son has like the speech prepared dad i'm so sorry i have wronged you will you take me home as a servant he can't even get the sentence out because his father goes bring the robe bring the ring that's got the family crest Bring the sandals that shows everyone he is not a slave. He is my son. My son has come home. You see, the second tour guide, you leave their presence. What do you do? You go to the gift shop. <laughs> right? You're like walking into the museum. There's no chance I'm spending any money in here. This place is overpriced and blah, blah, blah. Right? <laughs> But the tour guide finishes, and you're like, I want to know about the Hope Diamond. I want to know everything I can. Like I, my, he, he was so passionate. His heart was so on fire. I want that for myself. Listen to me. We have the greatest news the world has ever seen. The God of the universe loved us so much that he put nails through his hands and his feet to prove it and said, I love you this much. I'll take every bit of your sin if you'll just come to me and let me make you my own. I want to bring you into the family. I want to adopt you as my son. I want to adopt you as my daughter. I want to bring you in and give you my name and make you an heir to everything that is due me. When God looks at you, he's going to see me. He's going to see my righteousness. He's going to see my goodness. He's going to see my faithfulness. He's going to see how I never broke a single law because I'm going to take every bit of your sin and your shame. I'm going to place it upon myself. The question for you is, what do you want to hold on to? Law or grace? What you can do or faith in what Jesus has done? That's the gospel. That's what Paul's contending for here. He's fighting for you. He's fighting for me. But here's the beauty of it. Today, you might be feeling like, Pastor Josh, I'm completely undeserving of his love. Welcome to the club. Every person in this room is undeserving of his love. You're like, well, you don't know my sin stained past. Well, you don't know some of ours. <laughs> can he really love me like that? The answer is yes. But not only that, he can change you. He can change you from the inside out. He can turn you into a beautiful work of art. See, I want to close with this. How does our faith change our mindset and our vision? And it looks something like this. 
Sin and our reliance on our efforts creates shrinking thinking. As I look to what I can do or what I need to do to earn God's love, what happens is, is I take my vision and I shrink the size of God. And in the exact same moment, I take a magnifying glass and I look down at my sin and I make it so much bigger. I shrink the size of God and I magnify my sin. God, how could you love me? I went, God, do you, do you see this? Did you see that moment when I failed you? Did you see that? Did, do, are you really aware of how deep and how dark and how wet? Fill in the blank, whatever your sin is. And what we do is we, we, we shrink the power and the magnitude of God and we're, we're blowing up our sin. But the gospel flips it. The gospel throws away the magnifying glass and Jesus hands you a telescope. You know the difference between a magnifying glass and a telescope? A magnifying glass takes something that's really, really small and it makes it bigger than what it is. A telescope takes something that's massive but that's far away and brings it to a right understanding in our head. See, when I look out at the, the night sky and I look at the moon, there's some nights it looks kind of big and there's some nights, but that thing's huge. <laughs> it's massive, but I'm unaware of how big it is because of how distant from it I am. Our sin has created distance. What God hands us in the gospel is a telescope and he says, look how big I am again. Do you see that I'm, my grace is greater than all your sin? Do you see that my love is greater than all of your shame? Do you see that everything that I've done and accomplished for you is so much stronger? The question is today, do you want to hang on to the magnifying glass or do you want to accept the telescope? And say, God, would you show me how massive and big you are? Would you stand with me? today as we close if we could bring the lights down my final point is this it is in our faith that we please God and the reason for that is is because we find our pleasure in him. John Piper has one of my favorite quotes of all time. And this is what he says, and I want you to let this linger in your heart. If there's anything I would love for you to chew on today as you go home and thinking about this message, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. Can I tell you something? Listen, the offer on the table today is God's not just sitting there going, hey, here's a bunch of to-dos I'm looking for you to do now that you're saved. He's saying, I want your satisfaction, your pleasure to be in me and me alone. The offer on the table today is God is giving you himself. He's saying, I love you so much that I came for you. Not to just to impart gifts to you here and there to do this. No, I'm giving you myself, my presence, my joy. See, the reason faith is so important is because faith pleases God as we find our pleasure in him. Today, Maybe your heart is just spiritually exhausted because for so long 
It's been a rules, a to-do list, a I have to, I have to, I have to, I have to try, try, try. I have to do, do, do. I have to earn. I have to strive. I have to, can I just, Jesus is here today. And he's saying, my son, daughter, all you who are weary and heavy laden, come to me. I've got rest. Quit trying to change you because you can't, but come to me because I can. I can make everything different. But it'll only happen when your heart comes alive and you find your pleasure in him. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes with me this morning? Father, I pray right now for every heart in this room. Lord, I, I believe you've been speaking to us. Lord, your gospel is so beautiful. It's a message that, Lord, it's so hard for us sometimes to even grasp because we are so aware of our brokenness. How could there be someone who loves us like this? How is that possible, but God, you do? And sometimes the faith just to believe that it's true is the greatest step of faith. That not only do you love us like this, but that, that we can accept that it's true, not just for somebody else, but for me. So Lord, I pray for every heart in this room right now that, Lord, you would speak and you would do a work with no one looking around and every head bowed and every eye closed. I'm not going to ask you to come to the front. I'm not going to ask you to do anything like that. I just want to know who to be praying for this week. If you're here today and you're saying, you know what, Pastor Josh? I'm spiritually exhausted. I've been running, 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 trying, trying, trying. And today, I just want to be reminded once again of his pleasure in me. And I want to I be that second tour guide. I want that pleasure to be so full in my heart that when I come across to people, like they have a hunger for more of God because they've encountered me. If that's you this morning, would you just raise your hand? Thank you, thank you. Hands going up all around this place. Thank you, thank you. Thank you. I'm gonna pray a prayer over you and then we're just gonna worship. And, and as we close in worship, here's, here's my prayer. I'm praying that the presence of Jesus so fills this place that your heart is overwhelmed with pleasure. That you can just bask in the pleasure and presence of God and be reminded he is for me. He loves me. He's changing me. And that I don't have to earn that love. It is freely given in Jesus, but because I have that love, I will now be changed. Father, I pray in the name of Jesus for every heart in this room. God, I pray that you would do a work right now. Lord, I pray that even as we worship, that, that there would be a spark that ignites in our heart that would grow into an inferno that says, Jesus, I want you, I want more of you, God. God, I want a passion, I want a desire. I want you to be the greatest fulfillment of my life. I want you to be the thing that my heart longs for. I want you to be the fulfillment of everything that I look for in joy and peace and pleasure and relationship. That God, you are the sole purpose of everything that I pursue because God, I trust what you've done for me. I trust that you love me. I trust that you paid for my sin. God, I pray that in the name of Jesus, you would give telescopes today. That we would magnify the trueness of who you are, that the bigness of our God would grow in our hearts once again, and that the, the size of our sin would shrink correctly to the size it stands against our God. And that Jesus today, 
hearts would not just be set free, but that we would find our pleasure in you and you alone. God, I pray as we sing this song, would you be pleased by our worship, but I also pray, would you bring joy and satisfaction to every heart in this room? Because Lord, you are most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in you. Let's sing together.